here again and to share God's Word with you. Always a fantastic privilege. Enjoy being with all of you here in Bramford. I'd like you to open with me, if you would, to the book of Isaiah. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 52. first few verses of Isaiah chapter 52. Actually, there aren't a whole lot of verses in Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through through 12. And our topic for this morning is living in the light of the real security and future of what we have in Christ allows us to tolerate the difficulties and uncertainties of this present age. Um, long title to basically say, okay, what's bugging you today? What, what is it that you think about at 3 o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep? What are those things of this life that make you really long for heaven? What are those things that bug you? I was just out on the West Coast. Um, you know, it's going through a lot of people's minds. North Korea. Do you know why? They've got range on their missiles now. And they've more than threatened. And it's not the first time that we've underestimated an enemy either. Chances are they're not going to be able to reach Branford. Well, it doesn't mean it's not going to hurt if it happens. But that's a real threat. But when we understand that we have a sovereign God who controls all those and even those, you know, that young man who needs a paddling, frankly, over on the Korean Peninsula. When we understand that there is a sovereign God who has all that in control, we can really rest. We can learn to rest. But you know, it's not something that comes naturally. It's something we have to learn. And that's what we're going to talk about in Isaiah. So before we do that, let's go ahead and pray and dedicate this time to the Lord and see how God's Word can affect our lives to have real peace and how we need to be acting because we know what our real, true future and security is. Father, uh, take Your Word and make it plain and make it clear. Lord, with Your Holy Spirit, just present the right truth, not even necessarily what I speak, to the hearts of those who need to hear it. I pray that the hearts would be ready to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would prepare and, and clean the slate of anything that I would say and make it only be your Holy Spirit. And may, may that be what comes out of this morning. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the incredible privilege of opening your word in this country and, and knowing that we can do it in a way that the government isn't going to impede A lot of our brothers and sisters don't have that privilege. And we thank you that we do. Help us to rely then on you. And rely and understand that you, as a sovereign God, have everything in control. We pray this and thank you in the name of our Savior. Amen. So, historical context. Isaiah chapter 50. Generally, when we go to Isaiah chapter 52, we talk about the suffering servant. Now, that's just the very end. That's verse 13 through the end of the chapter. But I want to look about the first part. What comes before then? Uh, The suffering servant actually is is an amazing, an amazing passage, especially if you're talking to people who don't believe in the New Testament, uh, to to prove who Jesus Christ is. It's 
is a fantastic passage to, that clearly points to Jesus Christ. But I, I want to go before that to the first 12 verses in Isaiah 52. And if we want to look at the historical context, what has just happened, uh, Judah and Israel, remember David, uh, the United Kingdom, Okay, there was three kings to the United Kingdom. <laughs> Church, this, this, this is Bible history time. Okay, so we, we've, got, we've got Saul, and you've got David, and then you've got Solomon. Each of them reigned for approximately 40 years, 120 total years, of where the kingdom was united after the kings were started in the kingdom. Okay, so about 120 years. And then you have a period of a divided kingdom, where ten tribes uh, went of the north, uh, formed their own little country called Israel, and then two tribes in the south, made up specifically or mostly of Benjamin and Judah, made their own country in the south, referred to in the Bible as generally as Judah, because Judah was the most predominant of the two tribes down there. So they lived for, to be, for the beginning part of their existence in enmity one towards the other. So they were brothers, in essence, but they fought back and forth. Now, as we come to Isaiah chapter 52, what has happened is because of the extreme idolatry of the north and because of the idolatry also in the south, God sent his judgment on both those countries. And what has happened is the northern country, which was Israel, which their capital was Samaria, at this point has been completely obliterated. All the people that would live there have been taken away and dispersed among the nations. In essence, in truth, from this point forward, Israel ceases to exist as a nation. And those ten tribes, we would say, in general, were lost. Lost, just the, the people lost their identity as Jewish. Now, you know, that, that, that causes some complications because when we go to the, the book of Revelation, we find that there are revived groups from every single one of these tribes, even including the ones that were lost. How did that happen? Because you've got the 144,000, 12,000 12, for every single tribe. And, and there's two ways that we explain that. One is, well, God can do anything with anything he wants, right? He can bring them back. And the other thing, which is probably a little more, more reality-based as far as, you know, how does things physically uh, happen, pass along. Whew, I'm talking fast. Okay, is that a lot of the, during the time of, of extreme idolatry, many of the people in Israel who wanted to follow God, who were from those top ten tribes, said, I'm going to move to Judah because that's where the true worship of God was. That's where the temple was. And so from the vestiges of those, God also can raise up those people who we will see in the future. So in the end, what has happened at this point, Isaiah chapter 52 the top ten have been totally annihilated. And the Judah itself was invaded. And the invader at this point was the, the country of Assyria. Assyria was a, a massive empire that grew up quite quickly. It was, uh, it, was, uh, avail it was there during the time of David. It kind of ceased after that and it came back up in its, all its fury. And they were a people who were, frankly, just plain mean. Just plain mean. What you call the West Virginians, you know, the people who carry shotguns all the time. They were just plain ruffians and mean. And they took incredible joy out of being cruel. And what they had done is they, uh, 
an, an example. If, if you were to go today to, to England and, and you were to go to the British Museum, it's interesting, the British, when they, after World War I, they, they took over all the area of, of Mesopotamia that, where Israel and Jordan and Syria were, and they basically stole all the artifacts and took them back to London. And that's where they are today. Uh, you'll find a whole exhibit over Assyria. And you will see some of the things, the exhibits, uh, of, of how they prized and what they gloried in. And one of the things that you will find is a wristband that was at the gate of Nineveh, which was one of their capitals. And, uh, and, it, and it proved what, what this guy was proud that he was in charge of doing. And the wristband, what they would do is they would carve little figurines of, of, of what your job description was. And you know what this guy's job description was? This is pretty sickening. His job description was to flay people alive and pour salt into their wounds. And they gloried in this. That was the Assyrians. Nice neighbors? Just just aside there, could, could God use someone that bad as an instrument of his? These guys are, these guys are awful. That takes us to the book of, of Habakkuk, right? Where he, he talks about the exact same thing. How can you take someone so bad to treat us? We're not that, we're not that bad. But that's what had happened. And what happens now as we get to Isaiah chapter 52, we're still doing the backstory here. Judah, the people who were following God were being led by a very godly king. His name was Hezekiah. And it's interesting, when I was over in Israel a few years ago, and I, um, we were looking at Hezekiah's tunnel, which is one of the embattlements that he built to bring fresh water into the city of Jerusalem, specifically for the invasion he saw coming from these Assyrians so that there would be a fresh source of water in the city at all time, and they could withstand a siege for many, many years. That was the purpose of it. And that, that tunnel exists to today. It brings water from, from the spring of Gihon outside of, the, the, outside of the, the city walls, and it brings it to the pool, pool of Siloam inside of the city. So they would have a, a, a form of having fresh water, even if it would be limited, but at least they'd have a lot of, of water to be able to withstand an ongoing long siege. So we were at this same tunnel, which still existed today. You can walk through it. And there was a, a Jewish young lady who was giving us a tour of the place. And she was reading from her Old Testament, which only had the Old Testament. And uh, she was going, you know, back to front, front to back, how you read in, in uh, Hebrew. And so she went all the way to the back. She goes, let me tell you about this. She goes, let me tell you about Hezekiah. Hezekiah built this, wall, this tunnel, and he was a great king. In fact, this is what she said. Hezekiah was so great, he could have been the Messiah. Okay, so I'm standing there. I, maybe I was the only Christian in the group, but I just about dropped dead at that point. But what I need you to understand from that little declaration, obviously she was dead wrong, but she almost could have been to the size of what she said. But, but what I want you to understand is how important, how godly this king was. He, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't a bad king, but still, these Assyrians were pouring in to the entire country during this time. And they were attacking. And it's interesting that during this time, if we go historically, there's only one instance in all of the scripture that I can find where there is a prophet and a king, both in the temple, pleading before God. And that is the prophet Isaiah and the king Hezekiah, both of them in the temple, pleading before God, 
that God would save their country. What happened? The entire country of Judah fell, except for Jerusalem. And if we go to 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 13, it says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So that's what had happened. But, a few verses further down, in verses 35-36 through 36 of chapter 19 of 2 Kings, we see that God comes to liberate them. And what we have there is in the moment when uh, they thought everything was lost, they were surrounded by the Assyrians, or at least the Assyrians were approaching them. It's interesting because when you're standing in Jerusalem, they can say, though you can stand there and they can say, see that hill over there? That's as far as the Assyrians got because they got to that hill. And when they got to that hill, God sent the angel, his angel to the Assyrians and one night 120,000 people died. And they turned around and hightailed it back home. They didn't take Jerusalem. So that's the backdrop of what's happening here. So they've just gone through an incredible, whew, God saved us. Whew, how has God acted in the past? And what happens now, in, and what, what God is calling through Isaiah to the people of Judah, the people who are left, because there's not a whole lot left. Remember, all the, all the cities were taken captive. The only thing that's left is just the capital, just Jerusalem. God is calling them to say, in based of based and based off of what I have done in the past, I want you to know how to live. Because there's another future invasion coming, and that would come in about you know a few hundred years, or less than a hundred years later, when the Babylonians were going to attack and they were going to decimate all of Judah. They were going to take Jerusalem. And then we have the captivity of seventy years in in uh, Babylon. And so forth. But that was coming, and, and I'm pretty sure that Hezekiah during this time, or any of the godly people would have said, you know, Assyria is kind of on the decline, but Babylon's on the incline. So this is constant. There's, there's always somebody out there threatening us. So back to our question what is it that keeps us awake? What is it that worries us? How do we deal with that? So, Let's begin. Chapter 52, verses 1 and 2. God is going to call His people to exchange their current perspective and their condition for what is real. And that would be our first call. Verse 1 and 2. Awake! Awake! <laughs> okay. Alright, everyone's awake now? Alright. He's going to call them the seven things. First, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Shake yourselves from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So the reality was they were worried. They really were, and they had good reason to. But the truth behind their reality was that God was still in control. And he calls them to do seven things. He calls them to awake. He calls them then to clothe themselves with strength. The third thing, if I were to, to uh, uh, put this in my own language, he said, dress for success. You know, dress like you mean like you're happy. And the fourth thing, 
He said, calls him to shake it off, shake the dust off, you know, get clean. This is, this is a celebration time. This is real. This, is, this isn't something we need to be worried about. The fifth thing, he calls them to rise up. In other words, to wake up. The sixth thing, to sit regally. Sit like you are kings uh, or sons of the king. And then seventh, the seventh thing, he talks them that they should then uh, free themselves from their change. Why? Because in the last two phrases that we find in verse two, uh, verse 2 is that in the end, frankly, the bad guys lose. How can we confront then the difficulties of this life, the, the things that keep us awake at night, really, is that we have a complete confidence, even though in this world they may win, in the end, there is real justice and real judgment. And frankly, we're on that team. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer now. Frankly, we will suffer now. But what we can say is with complete certainty, we are on the Lord's side. And that gives us confidence. That gives us confidence. That gives us real confidence. The problem is, we leave, we live like we're defeated. right? And that's what verse 1 and 2 is talking about. Dress like you mean it. Like you're going to win. Because you are. So how do we apply that to ourselves today? How do, how do we look at that? What's, what's the practical side of of that. How do we put that into walking shoes? So God isn't saying that there isn't going to be pain in your life. Frankly, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what pain or difficulty or or family problem or health issue or what it is that really is confronting you right now or the uncertainty of the future. But you know what? I do know who does know what's going on. And I do know who does know what the solution in the end is. And we need to live in light of that. We need to understand the truth of the fact that we have a sovereign God. Because when we live based and controlled by worry, in essence, we're saying, God, you know what? I I know that you love me and I know that you kind of have a future, but I think you missed the boat on this one. And God's like, "Mm -mm. I I fully know what's coming. He'd be telling Hezekiah, I fully know that not one of these uncircumcised will set foot in this city. I know that. Act like it. And when we are confronted then with these difficulties in our lives, we need to truly come to grips with the fact God is sovereign. And He knew it. And He knows it. And He knows the solution. He knows the end of it. And the end of it, He will be glorified. Now live like that. Be joyful in that. Have peace in that. Dress like it, right? Dress like it. Know that God is in control and now act like that is the case. Um, We can't control the circumstances necessarily. But we can rest in the one who does control the circumstances. I I like to think about this. uh, There was a situation. Are there JWs in this town? 
Yes. A few of those come around knocking on your door two by twos. They're all over Ecuador. It's like a bad plague. Um, they pray. They pray on Catholics in Ecuador. Just pray on them. They'll have a great time when they come to my house. Um, generally, you know, it gets to the point where I'm sick and tired of arguing. It's just, it's just, it's almost, it's just not worth. It's not worth the breath. Uh, knocked on the, knocked on our front door. Andy was taught working in our front yard. He was cutting the grass. That's a good job for young men. Uh, he was cutting the grass, and I saw them come in, and they knocked on the front yard, and I was over behind the, I was over behind by where we parked the cars, out of sight, and I was just like, oh Lord, I don't need this today. I really don't need this today. Knocked on the door, and he went up and opened the door. And he started talking with them, and I said, there's two things that I can do right now. I, I could intervene, go up, I could slam the door in their faces, you know, that's probably what they want. You know, or I could just stay back here, and I could just pray for my son, that he would do the right thing. And I chose the latter. Uh, probably not because I was, you know, thinking heavily spiritually or anything, just because I was a chicken. And, and I stood back there and I prayed and my son was very courteous, very direct and said, no, we don't want anything. I'm sorry. No, we are, we're content. God has saved us. We're happy. Blah, blah, blah. Just all in Spanish. Thank you. Goodbye. And I thought of this passage. When we confront those problems in our lives, we lose sight of the fact that our Father is standing right around the corner and He's listening to everything that's going on. He's in full control and He is going to intervene when it is perfect at that moment. But so many times, because we're only focused on the problem, we forget that our God is right there. So what God calls us in verses 1 and 2 is, okay, remember, I'm right there. He'll get back to that a little later on in the, in the passage. Now live like that. Be bold. Be direct. Be confident. Be at peace. Because no matter what you're confronting, who's standing right there behind you? It's your Father. And He's going to bring everything to perfect and into fruition. We have that. Be bold. Verses 3 through 6. God will liberate his people and vindicate his character. Verses 3 through 6. For thus saith the Lord, or says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You will be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to reside there. Then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. Now therefore... What do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Verse 6, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Here I am. Verses 3 and 4, basically God is declaring here, you know what, there is a time when the oppression will be over. Do, do we ever keep that in sight when we're going through the tough stuff of life? That there is a time when it will end? Because sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes it feels like we go through one thing and it's just about over and something else happens. And then something else happens and it probably feels worse than the thing before. And we go through, 
the, the, the process of, of allowing the devil to say, you know what, this is just, you know, you're just miserable and just live like you're miserable. Live like you've been sucking on Greek, on, on lemons for the rest of your life. And what God is saying here, you know what, there is a time, you, you were sold for, you will be bought with a price that is without amount. You were sold for nothing. As if you didn't have any value, but you will be bought without price. How were we bought? I declare, what, what does Peter say? Right? You were redeemed not with gold or silver or something that's perishable. What were we redeemed with? The precious blood of Christ. And that's what he's alluding to here. The idea is that the God sees uh, God sees us in a to- we are so precious to God that He is willing to kill His Son in order to have us by Him for eternity. Have you thought of it that way? He's willing to see His Son suffer in such a way that's horrific in order to have us by His side for eternity. That's how precious we are in His sight. He loves us that much. God don't make trash, I think one of the kids said. God makes kids. We loves. We are precious. And then in verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, we see God proves His character. And He says in verse, verse 4, He says, For thus saith the Lord, three times He says it, My people went down first into Egypt. That's, that's a, a reference to the first time they went down for 400 years in, and when they were in Egypt in captivity after they were redeemed. Yes, I redeemed them then. And now, then the Assyrians oppressed them without cause. And if we looked at Second Second uh, Kings chapter nineteen, he redeemed them again. He saved them again. Now, therefore, verse four, what do I have here? Isn't it interesting? It's, it's like a, a, a parent coming into a room where the kids have been doing something mischievous, and the parent comes into the room and goes, "Okay, now what do I have going on here?" Okay, it's like God treating them like little disobedient children, all these people who have come against his loved ones. What do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people, okay, here's the reality, have been taken away without cause, again declares the Lord, those who rule over them howl, as it make loud noises, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long, okay, they think I can't do anything, look out, here it comes. Verse 6, therefore, this is the great promise, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking, here I am. Two great promises. First, they will know me for who I am. They will know my name. They will know who I really am. What is our way or ability to get through the tough stuff of life? We know who God really is. Uh, we were talking last night about earthquakes. Uh, lots of earthquakes in Ecuador. And one of the big earthquakes that happened down on the coast. And, and my, my father was in the, in the building that was getting all shook up at the time. And what, what happened was, you know, there's two groups of people who come out of an earthquake. Uh, the first group are the people who recognize who God truly is and are thankful to God. And there's the other group of people who go, whoosh, that was lucky. 
And what God is saying is, you're going to go through this situation and you're going to know that I am the one who saved you. You will recognize and the world will know my name. You will recognize that here I am. One of the results of going through the tough stuff and going through the tough stuff well is that we get a clear view of who God really is if we do it well. The the problem is that we begin to rely upon ourselves. We rely on our resources, rely on our own abilities. We rely on our past, on our friends, on our bank accounts, on our global health insurance. We rely on all the wrong things. And then we realize we feel so defeated at the end. But when we rely on the Lord and when He brings us through, we go, yes, because God did it. And that's the point. That's the point. Be faithful through it because we know who's in control of it. And in the end we can say, I know that God is the one that got me through it. And that's what fortifies, what strengthens our faith. God is calling His people as He calls us today. As we go through the difficulties of life and the real, real things that could happen. To say, first, I know who's in control of all of that. And that gives me the strength to be able to say, and Lord, you know what? Whatever it is that I have to go through, I will be faithful to you. And I know that I can be faithful to you because in the end, I will see you more clearly than I do now. Is that a goal in our lives? Do we really desire to know God more fully than we do now? Be careful how you pray for that. Because what God will throw something into your life where you're going to have to learn to depend upon Him. That's not bad. It's a good, it's a good thing. Because in the end, we become more and more Christ-like. But it's not an easy thing. God doesn't call us to the easy things. He calls us to the good things. God calls us to do the things that are best, not the things that are just, you know, borderline acceptable. And as we go through that process of learning and of, of, of throwing ourselves on His grace and becoming more and more dependent, we really see His face more clearly. We really see how, how He works through the details of life and, and brings things together for His own glory, sometimes beside or, or in spite of who we are. Mostly in spite of who we are. And that's something that needs to just make us rest in Him. Oh, if I only would have learned this before. If I only would have known this before. And God goes through that process. And now verse... So, as, as we see this coming through, then how, how do we put this into practice? In the middle of our uncertainty, in the middle of our pain, uh, we must allow ourselves never to lose sight of who is really in control. And when we go through the uncertainty and pain of life, and we go through it in dependence on God, on the other end is a clearer vision of who He is than what we have at present. And that needs to be one of the things that sustains us through the difficulty. That in the end, I'm going to have a deeper relationship with Him. In the end, I'm going to have a clearer perspective of who God is. In the end, His Word's going to be more real to me. And that is really what is important in life. Uh, what is most important in life isn't that I have success on the world's uh, scale, but that I be successful in God's eyes. 
verses 7 uh, through verses 10, we have the third division. God proclaims himself uh, as the real salvation. Uh, God proclaims salvation, and that is going to bring great joy. Uh, you've heard this passage. Paul refers to it in the New Testament. And he has a different, he has a different slant on the same passage. He says, verse 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, you watchmen, lift up your voices. They shout joyfully together. For they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully together. For uh, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. So what we have going on here, there's a joyful news. Specifically, this is the, this is the news that's referring directly to what was about to happen in the time of Isaiah chapter 52. And that was that they were going to hear the great news of the destruction of the Assyrian Empire by what was, in this case, a prince called Nebuchadnezzar. He was going to come out of Babylon and he was going to go to a place called Carchemish, which was probably the the largest land battle known to human history as far as foot soldiers is involved. And it was a place that was in uh, northern Lebanon, southern Turkey, a place where what happened was, uh, if we look forward into the time of King Josiah, this happened during his reign. So in, in just in a few years beyond this time, there was going to be an incredible battle. And then they were going to start wondering, you're going to be sitting in Jerusalem, just picture yourself sitting in Jerusalem going, wow, we saw all those Egyptians come scurrying by us, going up to go try to help the Assyrians up north. And we heard about the Babylonians who were coming there and the vestiges of the, of the Assyrian army were all there and they all attacked. I wonder what happened. Because these Assyrians, they've been brutal. I wonder what happened. I wonder what happened. And you're sitting there, you're a watchman sitting on the Jerusalem wall and you see somebody coming. And he's running and he's running. He goes, the Assyrians have been defeated. And what's going to go through your heart at that moment? These people who have oppressed you, who have killed your brothers, these people who have destroyed all the cities of, of Israel, ex, of, of, of Judah, except for Jerusalem, all these people, what is going to be your reaction? How lovely on the hills are the feet of those who bring good news. Oh, that's good news. What happened? God took them down. Oh, those great and evil enemies, they are destroyed. Who talks about salvation, it talks about here. And in the reference directly, the salvation they're talking about is the liberation from the Assyrian yoke. Who talks about that, that's going to come. And how who declares to Zion, that's so important as we see there in verse the end of verse 7. How, how does it say that, the, and it says to Zion, did you see the reference there? Your God reigns. Who got vindicated? Jerusalem. God's people. And everyone figured it out. They said, you know what? You said this was going to happen. And now it happened. 
Your God is the real God. When we go through the tough stuff of life, and we go through the tough stuff of life well, and we say, and I know my God will get me through this, and when He does get you through this, what does the world say? Wow, you were right. Your God really is the real God. And what testimony is that, brothers and sisters? That's the real testimony of our faith. When we can, with all certainty, depend on God during the difficulties and watch Him bring that to an end where we can praise God despite the results and live like we are truly sons and daughters of the King waiting for a new heaven and a new earth and have peace and enjoy and have joy. And when the world sees that and we've gone through this difficult thing, they go, wow, your God reigns. And he finishes in verses 8 and 9. For we will see, they will see it with their own eyes when God restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10. Isn't this a great figure? It says, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all nations. Uh, you know what it's basically saying there? God made a muscle. Yeah, He said, you know what? God just did, well, I can't do a whole lot of that. But the idea is, you know, God made a muscle, you know. And everybody saw it. The whole entire nation saw it. All verse, this, verse 10, the second part, all at the end, that all at the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. When we go through the tough stuff of life, when we go through the tough stuff of life well, and we say, my God is going to get me through this, and when He does get us through us in the end, they're going to say, yeah, God made a muscle. And I saw it, and I praise God for it. So what about us? An enthroned sovereign God is a great confidence for us believers and should be a great terror for His enemies. When some, going back to what we were thinking about, I was thinking about a little bit about, we talked about the, the earthquakes in Ecuador. You know, there's, there's two groups, right? There's the people that come out of an earthquake. Yeah, how, Okay, you guys live in the Northeast. How many of you have ever experienced an earthquake? Oh, there's two, three, four, okay. How many of you have a tremor? That was a semi going by on the road. That was nothing, okay. All right, have you... A major earthquake where where you're actually experiencing damage to structures and stuff around there is something where where when you go through that, the, the first thing that comes to... Well, what should come to a believer's mind is how not in control we really are of the, our surroundings. You, we, we think we are all secure. We think we have everything under control. We have all these things that we trust in. But when God just goes, you know what, let me see, let me just go like this to the world a bit. Uh, we realize how little we really are in control of things. And uh, interestingly enough, when that, when that earthquake happened down in Ecuador, there was two... The, the, People who, who either try, came out of there saying God is great because He allowed us to survive this. And there's other people who came out. You know what was interesting? Ah, kills me. Came out saying, praise you Mary because you got us through this. Oh! Just wrench your gut. 
Because they're so wrong. And they trusted and they're trusting in something that is so wrong. And what God is saying through this passage is when we trust in what is so right, in the end we will be vindicated. And all these people who think, oh, and and it, and it hurts our hearts and our souls who have put their trust in that which is not and who believe that which is a lie, when they in the end will look at us and say, you know what, beside all the things you told me and I refuse to listen, your God reigns. Zion, the people of Zion, the people of God are the ones who are vindicated. Shall we trust that, believe that? We aren't. On the losing side, we don't have the not truth. We have the real truth. Let's live like it. Let's be bold because of it. You know, I don't want to offend anybody needlessly. Well, you know what? Sometimes people need to be offended. Sometimes people really need to be confronted with the truth. I'm not saying all the time we don't have to live like completely offensive people. But let's not be so timid about our faith that people don't understand that we live by a standard and that standard is placed by God. And in the end, when they see that, even if they reject it, they will come to the grips that your God is the one in control. Salvation is of your God. I rejected that, if that be the case. But at least I see it's true and it's clear. In the last two verses, the verse of 52 that we're going to look at, depart uh, we see here the, we need to, how we need to live. If we truly understand God is in control, we say in verses 1 and 2, if we truly understand the idea that we will be vindicated when we totally put our trust in that God who is, who is in control, verses 3 through 10. How should we live now? Verse 11, Depart, depart, go out from her, touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. But you will no got not but you will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be, be your rear guard. First thing, verse eleven, depart from her. Leave it. Where is our loyalty today? Is our loyalty in this earth? Is our loyalty in what we have now? Is our loyalty in what we can attain? Is our loyalty in what the world tells us is success? God says, you know what? Leave it. Depart from that. And the second thing He says, touch no unclean thing. Don't grip so tightly to things of this world that are perishing, that will lose their value, which will not be forever. Don't touch those things. Don't hold on to those things. Hold on to what is important is what he's saying by inference here. What do we have that's most important in our lives? We say it, but do we believe it? Do we act like it? Is our faith really that important? Is our faith really that which defines us? Is our, is our trust in Christ more important than our trust in the Federal Reserve? Is our, is our desire to be holy more important than our desire to be comfortable? Is, is, is our walk with Christ important enough to be in, inconsist, or inconsiderate sometimes to the people around us because it is so much a part of who we need to be? Does it come as more important in our, in our, in our decision making? 
Depart from her. Touch no unclean thing. Devote yourselves to that which is important. Verse 11 continues, Go out of the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. Who's called to be the people and the messengers for the vessels of the Lord? That's, that's the idea of the gospel. You know, God didn't call angels to give the gospel to people. He called people to give the gospel to people. But we can't do that unless we've purified our hands. We can't do that unless we live like we know we need to. And he comes out in verse 12. He goes, because you will not go out in haste. You know what that's talking about? Remember we saw a few verses back the concept of vindication. He says, don't worry about it. When you, when you, when you go out of this world, you're not going to go out kicking and screaming. You know, we hear about... It was my, my, one of the gentlemen I, I work with back in Ecuador, he was, uh, we were talking about uh, two different people. We, we just buried a great uh, lady from the, from the assembly down there, and she was a saint, a saint of God. Fantastic, and we had just uh, we had been with her uh, the day before she passed away, and we were there was about six of us in the room, and we were singing some hymns, and she was had her eyes closed, and she was singing uh, along with us, or at least mouthing the words of the great the great promises of Scripture, and we read with her and we prayed. Oh, what a fantastic, what a fantastic way to go! You know, closed her eyes and woke up in glory. And you know, I was talking with my my brother after that, and he goes, you know what? I, I want to tell you the difference in between what we experienced there and when my grandfather died, who was a pagan atheist, hated God. He goes, I was there when he died. And, 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 and at the moment of his death, it's like his face totally changed into a, a, a face of shock and horror. And then he died. He goes, what a difference! Because you will not go out in haste. This will not end badly for you. It's not that you're going to be like, ah, run. You will not go as fugitives, like you've lost something. And then here's the great promise, another of the great promises. Verse 12, the last part says, For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, I'm not a military guy. But I do understand a little bit. I, I love, I'm a history buff. So I, I like history. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about was, was, is World War II. And the concept and some of the strategies that were going on during, during that time. And Do you know what? When, when you are walking through an unknown area, do you know what your most, important, your most important posts are when you're walking through an unknown area? It's the people at the very front and the people at the very back. Why is that? Those are your most vulnerable parts. First, because you don't know what you're coming into. And you don't know if they've looped around to come in and at you from the rear. And what does God say? You walk with me through the tough stuff of life. What do I promise I will be? Verse 12 says, For the Lord will go before you, up front, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Can you be confident then in the middle? Can we be confident to live our lives out the way we need to now because the Lord has your back? It needs to be that way. And what God is calling us through this passage, every single one of us, is to realize how important it is to walk like victors now because He's got our back now and forever.
Can we live like that? Can we go through whatever we're going through now because we have that firm grip on reality that God is going to glorify Himself despite it all and in spite of it all and that means that He will have the best for us. We will see His face. The world will recognize that and we can be confident and secure that all things work together for good for them that love God. Can we love God even in the tough stuff? Can we trust God even in the difficulty? Can we live like it? Is it worth it? Resoundingly, yes. So let's do it. I don't know what you're confronting, but I know who's got it in control. And I know who's going to bring himself to be glorified if we so live like we need to, despite of the circumstances. Let's pray. So our Father, your word is clear. Uh, We need to act and live like victors, even in the middle of difficulties in our lives. Because in the end, when we are faithful, you are glorified and we are on the winning side. You you are going before us and you are our rear guard. And Lord, I, I thank you for the confidence that needs to give us in order to be bold today to live our faith the way we need to for your honor and glory. So we thank you for your word. Apply it to our lives, Lord. Don't, I beg you, Lord, through your Holy Spirit to make that which is most applicable to every heart sink in to the level of, Lord, that we cannot leave change, uh, different uh, without being different. We cannot be undifferent to what you have said. I pray this in Jesus' name.